You're listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. What makes me happy? Wow. Okay. Um, several. Do I have to pick one or can I pick several? No. No, you can pick whatever you want. Okay. Um, being around family when I and and that's not unfortunately that's not everybody that I'm blood related to but being around family when I'm in an environment where I know I can absolutely be myself and if I I don't have to worry about saying the wrong thing doing the wrong thing we can just exist authentically that's the best feeling um and then secondly working toward a challenge that I thought was not a given that I'd be able to accomplish. So the moments when I am working towards, I set a goal, I say, I want to do that. I don't really know if I can do it. I don't know what it looks like. It's going to be super hard. I might fail at it. And then I get to a point where I've worked towards it. I'm not quite there. And I go, oh man, I think I actually might be able to do this thing. So I I had that experience training for Ironmans. I said, I want to do this. I'm pretty sure, I don't think right now, on day one of training, I don't think I can do it. And I don't even know that I will be able to get to the point to doing it. And then, you know, six months later or so, I, I look around one day, I go, dang, I made some progress. This is really fun. <laughs> well, what makes you happy? Um, I'll just, you know, chocolate other, ice cream, I guess. No, no. <laughs> I was going to say, other than hanging out with me. After your thoughtful answer, <laughs> my answer seems so crappy. My, I was gonna say you were not gonna say chocolate ice cream. No, no, that was just oh, okay. Um, the when I accomplish something that I set out to accomplish, you know, when but it's it's not really the the finality of finishing it. It's do you ever get in that headspace where you you say I I am I am this. This is what I am. I'll give you an example. When I was hiking on the Camino. I would begin to wake up in the morning and the same thing happened to me when I was hiking on the, on the Pacific crest trail is I would wake up in the, in the morning to begin my hike. And that's all I had to do that day is get yeah. from point A to point B. And I remember having this feeling that I am a hiker. I, this yeah. is what I do. I'm not, I'm a, not a person who is hiking. I am, I'm a hiker. And it, and it was, it, it was fleeting. It didn't stay with me. Once I came back, I didn't still think I was hiker, but for that time on the trail, it was this almost a transcendent experience. It was really, uh, fulfilling. It was really an interesting phenomenon that happened. Yeah. I, it, when, when we're working towards those goals, I think that there's, there's those moments where we feel incredibly happy, uh, where we feel like we're accomplishing something, where we feel like we've achieved this new state of identity that's wrapped around this, this effort that we're pursuing. And there's also another side where we can get burnt out. We can get dejected. We can feel profoundly unhappy or, while we're working hard. And that's what we talked to, about today. Uh, our guest, Jennifer Moss, joined the show and we discussed the burnout ap- epidemic that is plaguing companies across the country in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic. Jennifer Moss is an award-winning happiness expert, Harvard Business Review contributor, nationally syndicated radio columnist, and was formerly on the Global Happiness Council. So she definitely knows what she's talking about when it comes to happiness. I learned a lot from our conversation with Jennifer. I know that you will too. I'm Sanger Smith with my dad, Sean Smith, and this is Decidedly. So what are you, what are you working on now? I know the, the book just came out. Tell me about that. Yeah, the book just launched on the 28th of September. So it's a couple months out, but I mean, that's still pretty new for yeah. a book launch. And, yeah. um, it's still really busy. And I'm, um, you know, going back, we have some research that's happening now in a joint partnership between Yale and Harvard. And then we look at the data from that in um, January. It's really exciting. What kind of, what kind of research is it that you're working on? It's really focused on burnout in healthcare, very specifically. It's really new and we're using new, new sort of traits and um, interventions to see what's going to work or not. But we're also pulling in their 
and we, which I've been doing for the last, you know, over a decade is looking at specific internal data that's already being captured and then trying to look for how that plays out around well-being. And, um, and so really trying to analyze not just new data with research questions or academic scales, which is what, you know, I, I also do, but figuring out how we can maybe detect it based on other sort of metrics. And, um, and so that'll be interesting. That's really preliminary. We haven't even like shared that yet, but I'm really excited to see if there's ways that we can maybe detect it through other ways that we're measuring. So this this is primarily in the healthcare industry is, have you seen, I'm guessing you have, uh, yeah, what's the point of that? It's been like really easy for nurses. I yeah, what a cakewalk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, a lot of my research is in other organizations, lots of corporate, you know, tech and finance and, and others, but in, and in ed- education. But I've done quite a bit of research over the years in healthcare too, because yeah, you're right. It's the most burned out, the most prone to burnout. And then they also attract uh, high-performing perfectionist type um, people and they are more at risk of burnout. So uh, it's like a recipe for chronic stress in that. Are, in that are you finding it that the causes of burnout are, are any different in, in that specific industry than other industries? Uh, any caregiver industry, any industry where it's life or death, you know, and you're working at the stakeholder, it's so critical to your effort that, you know, that the consequences are more catastrophic if you're, you know, if you're not well, it's, it changes uh, the impact and, and the risk. I mean, you look at teachers, for example, too, they're highly in, invested in the stakeholder, the student, so they're more at risk. And um, and you don't see that as much that same sort of that same sort of issue within tech and finance, but you see the workload and hours are pretty similar to healthcare. Just the amount of overwork in some of those organizations is unsustainable. Um, but again, you add in the healthcare piece, you add in that the stakeholder matters so much. You add in the fact that like you leave your shift, it could mean that someone in your community isn't served. And then you're also, you know, being asked to work 24 hour cycles. It's pretty dangerous. So I I would guess that overwork or it would seem like that overwork is a big part of what causes burnout. Uh, And and you you spoke to the importance of the work that you're doing. Uh, You know, obviously, if the stakeholders are, are, you know, highly connected and it's life or death, as you mentioned, are there... What are the what are the root causes though of burnout other than just the obvious like geez it seems like I'm working a lot, or is that it? You know I love it, that this question because it's so fascinating when you actually look at at the world WHO the World Health Organization actually um, decided to identify burnout as an occupational phenomenon workplace stress left unmanaged they made that distinction in 2019 and actually inter- added. Um, burnout to their international classification of diseases, their IDC-11, which they didn't go so far as saying it's a medical syndrome, but they did identify that it is um, a symptom of chronic stress. But they outlined these six root causes and overwork is one of them because it kills 2.8 million employees per year. It's pretty catastrophic. But then you also look at five other root causes, which is a lack of fairness. So that's systemic discrimination, a lack of community, which is loneliness and isolation, lack of agency. So not feeling like you have any control over what you do, why people are massively leaving the workforce right now and exiting so fast because they're being told to go back to work five days a week and they don't want to do that. Um, And then also lack of um, rewards for effort. So just over overwork and not getting paid fairly for it. And then lack lack of values. So this sense of this values mismatch, you know, when you're working so hard, you feel really disconnected to why you even are doing the job in the first place. And so those are the six root causes. And they're definitely not solved just with self-care, which is a big part of what I try to get across to folks. Sure, sure. I, you know, we, we talk a lot about value alignment. Uh, in the work that we do is, you know, as we focus on decision-making decision-making really hinges on how you relate to your values. Are you aware of them? Are you using them for decision-making? And so when you look at a job situation, are you're saying that there, if there's a misalignment in values that that can contribute to higher incidents of burnout? 
Yeah, it's one of the six root causes. And and when you look at values mismatch, you see this in a bunch of different ways. Right now, we're looking at this as sort of um, emotional distance from one's job or lack of effectiveness in one's job because you're so far away from what you you know, what you thought you were good at after you feel so exhausted and overworked and cynical. It also is just a fit. You know, a lot of organizations really pitch a certain type of, you know, concept or idea or or aspirational goals of their organization. And then you get in there and it's totally opposite of that. You can feel really disconnected from, from what you're doing. It also is just you know, career, for example, a lot of nurses are leaving the workforce right now because the idea of what they thought nursing would be, teachers too, what we thought teaching would be, and you get in there and it's actually pretty bureaucratic. It's really long hours. You're not getting paid very well. You don't feel valued. Uh, You know, those are the kind of things that create this values mismatch and it leads to burnout. So how do you differentiate, you know, a lot of these things, to me, you know, we're going to work. It's not, it's not going to be fun. That's why they pay me to do it. Right. I mean, so some of this is the natural just sort of relationship of work. And, but I I hear what you're saying about these mismatches on values and agency, particularly fairness, all, all these things make sense to me, Mm -hmm. but I, I got, I keep going back to that. There's got to be a difference between legitimate uh, burnout is defined or, or diagnosed and, and categorized as such. And just general, hey, you know, I just, I'm tired, I'm lazy, or this person's just not a great worker. How do I, how do I differentiate if I'm an employer between somebody who's, you know, suffering from the, the real effects of burnout that I ought to do something about and somebody who's just not great. <laughs> somebody who's just, you know, they're, they're just kind of lazy. They're just kind of slow. How do I differentiate between these two? Because I, my guess is I, I need to address them differently. Yeah, I think that one of the things that we need to understand right now is that in a time where there's macro stress or like a global pandemic, which is causing a lot of you know grief and, and trauma, and then we also have um, growth and business as usual, despite it being really difficult to have a chronic stressor like that on us all the time and still hit those goals. We have this massive increase of workload. We've added about 30% more to each day of work around three hours more per day in the U S of work that we're actually in, you know, engaged in. And then we're checking in for the first time between 12 and 3 AM. And all the data keeps showing us that about 85 to 91% of the workforce is burned out. You as a manager can probably assume that a lot of your team is burned out and that we should be looking at, you know, stages of burnout. We need to be looking at how exhausted are your folks? Are they complaining about being tired a lot? Like, are they talking, using words like, I'm just so tired. If you start to see things like, that they're making mistakes or that they're, you know, they're not hitting those same performance levels that they used to, then you can assume that they probably are dealing with chronic stress. We misdiagnose underperformance often when it really is chronic stress that is the symptom. And, and we overlook that. I think you should determine, is that person, were they always a really, you know, high performing person? And then suddenly they're not. There is a distinction usually when someone starts, that person that's just lazy or that person that isn't really committed to being engaged or productive, you can see that pretty soon, you know, within the relationship with that employee. But when you see someone that has been really passionate about what they do and they're really good at what they do and then all of a sudden they're not, you need to kind of question what is at the root of it. And and it typically isn't just like, oh, all of a sudden now I'm a lazy employee. Um, And I think that's been a, a big problem is that we've, Burnout has kind of been this like whiny millennial problem. It's been, it's been identified as that. And I think it's a huge disservice and burnout is catastrophic. It's enough that the WHO actually had to create some guidelines around it and and included in its IDC 11. Um, And I think now employers are just finally saying, okay, this is, this is my, I'm accountable to this. I need to figure out what to do to, to make it right. So what makes it a, what makes it a, no longer a whiny millennial problem. Why because someone, I, many people have listened to you say those exact words and still not been convinced. Right. 
Well, I think when, because people are exiting the workforce, you know, at astronomical levels and they're willing to leave their jobs and completely, you know, leave their careers, we're looking at the increase of, uh, Anxiety and and self-reported anxiety go through the roof. We used to be four percent of people on average per year that reported, you know, um, social anxiety and generalized anxiety. We're looking at now in the U.S. about thirty-nine percent of people saying that. And I think too that people are now leaving their jobs and they're not staying for pay. When you look at the global Microsoft survey where they looked at 30,000 employees, you looked at why people were leaving their careers entirely in the next three months and only 4% rated compensation. It is how they were treated during the pandemic by their employer and whether they could talk about mental health or whether they were supported around mental health. And so, you know, it's a bottom line issue now. And those organizations that don't pay attention to it, they'll be taxis. And the other ones that pay attention to it will be Ubers. So it really is a, it's a bottom line issue that needs to be, I think, resolved. And employers know it. They can't ignore it anymore. And they have to know their role, too, because when you're asking people to work 80 hours a week in the middle of a global pandemic where they're juggling, you know, three kids at home and some, you know, and they just can't do it. So we're at 1988 levels of women, you know, female labor force participation. It's a, it's a GDP. It's a bottom line issue that, that is being now finally, I think, understood. So some of it is that we're seeing people make the choice to leave. And whereas if, if what Sean's saying is, Hey, maybe people are just lazy, you know, a cynical, um, old school businessman or leader might say, nah, Jennifer, nobody's getting burned out. They're just weak and they can't handle it. Cause back in my day, I walked to school, uh, you know, eight miles uphill both ways in the snow and I never got sick of it. Um, if they're quitting, that probably means that it wasn't that they were lazy and just trying to skate by. Yeah. The, the legacy piece is probably the hardest. I think that will, we'll find is going to be the hardest part to fix where we're going to start to see that, um, that there's certain old school ways of thinking about it. And it's very difficult to change because there is a implicit bias. You know, I went through this. Why do you not get to go through this? It's that's kind of, there's the lack of fairness that I feel. And I sort of feel like this is the way of the industry. A lot of, you know, finance, uh, junior finance guys that I talked to are saying, and girls, sorry, women and men both say that it's almost like I'm being hazed in those first, you know, 10 years mm -hmm. of being mm -hmm. in this job. And, and a lot of them are saying like that it doesn't feel like what I want to do anymore. When you have something so paradigm shifting that you are facing your own mortality for 20 months, your your world shifts, things change. We got pretty microscopic about what our goals were and it was just, you know, staying healthy and hoping that our families didn't get sick and um, you know, and juggling the the demands of home life and it became sort of less consequential what our jobs we're doing for us. It, it changed the need of them and status isn't as important as it used to be. And, you know, financial rewards because we needed so much more to feel joy and happy and, and whatever those fleeting, you know, those fleeting moments of joy that we would capture from having big salaries that changed over the last 20 months. And, and that is, I think, going to be a big factor in changing the workforce. Yeah, that's really interesting. I noticed that a lot in um, in my industry, right? Financial advice, not quite the, you know, Goldman Sachs work 157 hours a week mm -hmm. in a skyscraper and don't go outside to breathe, you know, a single breath of oxygen <laughs> for a month straight. Um, you know, that's, that's not the industry that we're in, but um, it's similar in, the, in that 20, 30 years ago, um, when the industry was really kind of starting, advisors would would grind for no money to try to convince people to trust them to manage their their money and and, and help them plan their financial future. And, and that was the only way to do it, to start out an industry like that. They had to go door to door and cold call people. And there was no there was no money to pay them anything. So they had to grind it that way. And as the industry has grown, that's become less and less of a fruitful approach simply because most people have advisors. 
at this point. So you can't cold call. Um, you can't knock on doors in the same way, even if you wanted to. But I've noticed in talking to you know business partners I've had in the past or other advisors elsewhere in the industry that a lot of advisors, despite understanding the shift and seeing it and openly admitting that that is the shift that has taken place, will still revert back to old habits when it comes to leading and managing young advisors and say things like, well, I don't see him putting in 80 hours a week or, you know, I don't see, why is he complaining about a lack of opportunity when I had to, you know, shovel horse crap for five years and get paid minimum wage? And I go, yeah, man, that's not the same anymore. It's just not the same. Um, well, there, there is a, uh, there's a company in our industry that still makes guys and, and gals walk, walk neighborhoods and knock on doors, even though that is a 1940s approach to it's hazing exactly like you said, you know, it, and I think it's just, you know, and, and we still see doctors do it, uh, overworking, you know, residents, you know, just say, well, I, I had to work, you know, 80 hours a week. So I guess you're going to have to as well. I, that's got to work towards building this this, you know, stress level, but, you know, at the same time, there's a certain level of stress that's got to be good. You know, I, I think there's, there's a, I need a certain level of stress in my life. I think most people do to perform. And, and if you take away too much stress for me, I, I feel like a rudderless ship, you know? So how do you balance between making sure you've got enough stress, enough goals out there that you're working towards that you that you can achieve and grow and strive for something, but you, you don't want to create this, this burnout effect. I love that question because a lot of people, um, you know, and I write about this in the book, the people that are most at risk of burnout are also those that have, re they're really bad at self-care. They have high perfectionist strivings that end up being kind of dangerous. Their passion goes from harmonious to obsessive very quickly. Um, and so you've got this sort of the, like I said, this recipe for burnout because industries love those types of people that just like really push themselves and they don't, their boss doesn't even need to push them because they're the ones that are, you know, working these unsustainable, you know, hours. And, but a lot of that is driven by invisible pressure, you know, like the only way that you really feel like you can get to that golden, you know, carrot is if you do that. So it becomes just a subconscious push all the time. So there has to be a better realization of what actually makes you most successful and what kind of boundaries do I need to maintain very healthy harmonious relationship with my workload and then not take it to a point of obsession. And we have to start putting those checks and balances in. So is it, you know, I've stopped spending time with my family. Is it, you know, I don't engage in things that make me happy outside of work. Like there's no hobbies that, that I'm engaged in. Am I doing, you know, am I saying yes to all these projects and I'm not actually as effective because I've said yes to so many things. Um, how do I make sure, sure that I balance the other parts of my life? Because you know, work is really an important part of our life satisfaction. If we like right. work, it does improve just overall, you know, happiness in life. Sure. Um, but we also have to start thinking about like, what are our deathbed regrets? You know, is it going to be that I, you know, finish the brief on Friday or, or finish the brief on Monday? Like no one actually cares, doesn't matter to anyone. And at, you know, 95, when you're sitting on your deathbed, hopefully you, you know, you, you get to live to 95, you won't be regretting any of those things that you didn't do, or you didn't get to, you'll be regretting that you have no family and friends around you. And so we need to start thinking about what the balance is. Um, but I already don't life. have any friends, Jennifer. You don't have any friends? Is that what you said? I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> So what, what if I'm already a loser? It can't get worse, right? You've already reduced your lifespan by like 20 years already. <laughs> I, I would I would certainly think that relationships at work would, would be one of the key factors of preventing burnout. But uh, the, okay, so let me let me ask you, because, you know, our focus is around decision making. And, and we look at this framework around wanting to avoid, uh, wanting to identify and avoid, you know, correct issues of burnout. When you, when you think about that, how, you know, how would someone defeat bad decision-making as it relates to avoiding burnout? How can we make better decisions so we can avoid burnout? 
I think a big part of it is that we need to start thinking in a different way about how we're leading. You know, you've probably heard of human-centered leadership. I really believe in, you know, empathetic leadership, but more active listening. And people talk about it as a soft skill, which really ticks me off because it's definitely extremely hard to cognitively build um, empathy and to lead with that approach because there's, as leaders, there's a lot of competing pressures. Um, But I think one of the things is, is that it's about you know, making it more micro-targeted, not thinking of this as like, I'm going to go in and now I'm going to prevent burnout across my entire organization with some sort of wellness program. It, it That isn't, isn't going to work. It's a, how do you operationalize things? It's just tiny incremental goals, you know, changing the amount of meetings that you have per week, maybe reducing some of those Zoom calls, making sure there's guidelines and boundaries around time theft. Do you, Does everyone need to be in that meeting? Probably not. Can we make sure that we treat time as currency inside of our organizations instead of thinking about it like everyone's time is there to waste. We're increasing collaboration by way too much. Thinking about the bigger picture around, you know, family planning and making sure there's equity across the board for men and women to both take that time off um, to support caregiving, subsidizing care for people that are dealing with this constant, you know, new variant that comes in and changes everyone's life in an instant. Like a lot of these things are tiny micro changes and there's many of them, but they can be operationalized if we do them in these small sort of steps and having a lot of patience that change is going to kind of take a while to see the results. Did you, did you say reducing collaboration would be helpful? Reducing over collaboration will be helpful. So thinking about using collaboration in a way that's wise. So how do we collaborate in the right ways, but how are we right now not collaborating in the right ways? What we're doing is we're inviting because it's virtual. Now we have to invite every single person to the meeting. If that person doesn't get invited, their nose is out of joint because they didn't get invited. Yeah. You can tell when uh, people keep their camera off. I, when we started having, um, you know, virtual meetings, I was asking my friends who are business owners, hey, so like, how are y'all running this? What are you doing? And one of my friends, um, she has basically run a virtual business for the last, uh, I don't know, like 10 years. You know, they've been virtual before this started. And she goes, well, we already do a virtual meeting every day with the whole team at eight o'clock. And, you know, it's just our standard that everyone turns their camera on. And I kind of, I guess, jumped into it a little too quick and, assumed that there was, I, I, I thought I had, I thought she had just told me everything I needed to know in that two sentence statement. So I started to, to kind of institute these check-ins and I, I noticed several people, you know, keeping their camera off and it would frustrate me. And I'd be like, well, you know, Hey, Jennifer, turn your camera on. And then after a while I realized, well, if this person is just checking out, I'm not bringing them any value. Why am I, why are they even here? If they feel like they can just shut off and clip their toenails on their couch while they're just listening to me drone on about whatever the heck I'm talking about in this meeting, maybe I just didn't need to even have them here. Maybe we don't need the whole team here every day or every week for this topic. Well, I, you know, I think Sanger, when, when we look at these these types of interactions where it's virtual and, it, and we we I would guess and Jeffrey tell me if I'm wrong uh, an increased amount of, of burnout in the workforces probably is related to the increased amount of these virtual meetings because it's not a it's a high intensity meeting I can't check out what you're seeing is my face and what I'm seeing is your face and that's not natural. And it's and it's a high intensity interaction. And how do I that takes a lot of energy. And if I if I'm doing this all day long, whereas before I used to have just more natural, lower energy interactions, I'm going to leave the day burnout. 
There's really great, um, really great data on this. Stanford Media Lab did this assessment of Zoom fatigue, Zoom burnout, and he identified, and this goes across any video conferencing platform, but he had four very distinct reasons why it's burning us out. And one of them is just that, you know, in real life, if we're in that kind of high level of intensity face-to-face interaction, we're either mating with that person or we're fighting that person. And we are in this hyper aroused state now, and we don't even know it. We're just like, we are just not used to this kind of real close interaction. I mean, think about the office when someone gets really close up in your face, how you feel about that. It makes you feel uncomfortable. So Jennifer, I have a question for you. When you, when you look at the decisions that you have to make as you, as you deal with uh, people trying to prevent this, what, what are the most important decisions you've had to make? Well, I guess to switch from really engaging organizations and focusing on the well-being and wellness place. Cause I think I was, it was a bit hypocritical and maybe it was just, I didn't know enough to understand that, you know, positivity is really helpful. Well-being is really helpful and encouraging people to have happiness inside of organizations is great, but it's pretty toxic if you aren't dealing with all the other people that are dealing with stress. And so I really started to focus less on that the happiness conversation, even though all roads are leading to, you know, well-being, hopefully. But I was really focusing in on um, then chronic stress and how to improve that. And it led me to some really interesting research around motivation factor in our hygiene factor theory, which is the idea that if you don't have hygiene, like the basics done in your corporation or your organization or your firm, if you don't have any of those things done right, and you're then trying to motivate with perks, you know, like yoga and subsidized gym memberships and, you know, on-site chefs, all that stuff is just going to be useless because those people are not in a place of motivation. They're in a place of like, it's like giving, it's like giving someone ice cream when they need water. And I think a lot of organizations are doing that right now, just handing out this ice cream because it's sexy and I can declare that I give, you know, unlimited vacays and all this stuff. But when it actually comes to what people really need, they actually need you to, you know, manage their workload and manage their time and not make them exhausted at the end of the day from too many Zoom meetings. You know, It seems like that's going to be a really, really, really big challenge for large corporations. Um you know, I have a few friends that work in, uh, you know, here in Fort Worth, we've got, we make airplanes and helicopters, right? We got Bell and Lockheed and nothing against those companies, but I've got friends that work at both and man, the stories that they tell me about just what it's like. And we'll talk about, you know, their career and I'll kind of juxtapose it to my experience, uh, which is in no way similar to being an engineer at either of those companies. And it'll be things like, man, I'm, I'm just, I'm getting overloaded. I'm getting ran through the ground and there's no one to talk to at a place like that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's my manager and then his manager and then his manager and his manager and his manager. And, you know, 30 minutes later of repeating those words, you get to the CEO of the company and this guy has, what is he going to do to get anything he wants? Um, and they feel a little bit stuck and, and. I can't say that I would do any better of a job if I employed 100,000 people. <laughs> I don't know that it's that easy to say every single person at my team is going to get an individualized approach that uniquely highlights their strengths and move them away from areas of the company where they're forced to use their weaknesses and where they're getting truly what they want out of a career, not simply a paycheck that looks like their peers. Good luck, man. You're going to do that for 100,000 people? Well, I'm going to need 200,000 people to meet with those 100,000 people just to get them set up right. I, I, I can't imagine how a company that employs that many people would even begin to make any sort of reasonable step towards achieving that. Well, I mean, I've done some, you know, consulting work with um, Hewlett Packard. They're a great example of a large organization and, um, and same with IBM and others. And some of the conversations that I've had is really how well they empower their direct managers. And Google is another example of someone that I work with. And one of the things that they constantly do is just reinvent the size of their teams. And I write about that in the book. Team size is really important. So five or six people should be your max. And direct managers have to be really empowered to lead and, and lead based on what the infrastructure and culture is at the top. And, and that's the thing is that it isn't like 
no one's, you know, managing the burnout prevention strategy for a hundred thousand people. Yeah. It's a direct manager that's managing it around five, but they need to be empowered and have permission. They need to have KPIs that make sure that they're following that. You need to be measuring, you know, employee trust, employee wellness. You need to be adding burnout measures to your KPIs and people that are in, uh, in production focus groups or revenue focus groups. They they need to be tar- they need to have targets that match up to those those goals and lots of organizations are doing a great job of that because they take it so seriously and it's why Hewlett Packard and you know I share that in the book you know Alan May did a lot of really great analysis and found out that you know employee trust across the board was at ninety six percent in the middle of the pandemic. Um, and a lot of that had to do with these institutionalized ways of thinking about well-being long before the crisis. When you say employee trust, you, you, are you referring to their trust of the company or their trust of the leaders or their trust of each other? All They, they measured different Everything. variations of trust. And then they also looked at their employee satisfaction scores, which was 93%. So really yeah. high, you know, across the board. And, and because they had really put in this strategy about four years before the pandemic and had already, you know, had the investment in it, but... Direct managers and small teams make a huge, you know, that's a huge way that you can operationalize it. So it's not just like one CEO runs the the decisions. You know what? It it seems to me that most, I think there's a, a now a minority of people that reject the premise of your work, right? But I think that's a minority of leaders who are now, you know, increasingly aging out of the workforce. Who, who will say, you know, Jennifer, I hear what you're saying, but I really do think that people are just ungrateful, lazy, and uh, we're going to, you know, keep cracking the whip because that's what was done to me. Um, but everyone else generally wants to get better in this area. Um, yeah. I most think people do. What's hold it, what decisions are those people not making? Because well, they've think- decided that they want to do it, but they're just just not happening. I think a big part of it is that, like I said, you know, these leaders are understanding that they've lost like some orgs that I'm talking to have lost like 35% of one team and they're all their high performers and it's a very expensive cost. And they're doing exit interviews and finding out that we just can't think that way. And there's a lot of leadership accountability. And so we're seeing real bias training inside of executive leadership to change mindset because they can't lose those people. So they're making decisions to choose which way they're going to go. And, and the thing is, is that, like I said, there's just, there's no ignoring what's happening right now. And so you could have the, some of those people um, that still are holding on to those values, but really when you look at being competitive, it's going to be culture. It's going to be other types of compensation packages that include, you know, wellness, like, like, like teletherapy. It's going to include being able to have those kind of conversations at work. It's going to be So to I'm have- interested in, with that, right? Teletherapy. Mm-hmm. Cause that would to me seem a little bit like the ice cream. Am I wrong? Well, no, like a, a meditation app is like ice cream. Teletherapy is water. Teletherapy is getting access to someone where you can talk to a therapist at, at in any real time. You can text a therapist. You can have, you know, um, counseling on cognitive behavioral therapy, which is really the only way that you can treat cr- uh, mental illness and chronic stress uh, and anxiety. So it seems like a, it's a difference between... It's it's making a real investment, deciding to really invest in the problem that you are seeking to solve. Yeah, it's it's looking at the root cause versus the downstream impact. And, you know, a perk like a like an app that helps you meditate is a wellness tactic. And that's a perk and that's downstream. Um, but that's not going to prevent your your chronic stress. You have to do that with real support tools and an openness to talk about mental health and mental illness at work a vulnerability at the leadership side to say that that it's okay to talk about burnout, um, which is very different. And teletherapy is upstream. Like I said, downstream is, is, is tactics. Uh, To me, it seems like there is a a problem across the board for many leaders who, who see problems that they want to solve. And this is one of, of many, right? The burnout problem is one of many challenges that leaders have to, to face and, and, genuinely, I believe most want to address. They really do want to address it. Um, There's a decision that has to come, and that is making a real investment 
in addressing that problem. And it seems to me, I, I'm not the expert, you are, it seems to me that the decisions on how to address it are where people fail, not the decision on whether to address it. Um, both. I think there's a lot of people that are deciding not to address it because they're old school and don't think there needs to be the, the case for it. And then there's others who have different strategies or they think the wellness strategy is the same as the burnout prevention strategy. And so yeah. they, they don't know how to you know, choose what to do. And a lot, that can be that fixed through education and that can be proactively addressed through just knowing. Um, but the other is really much harder to solve those people that are you know, pretty biased about what work looks like. How big of a group is that? It's a, it's an enormous group. The those Okay. Groups, I was more yeah. optimistic, I guess. I thought it was, <laughs> I've assumed well, it must I, be small. <laughs> I think that there's a real desire and intention and we're seeing shift, but I think like in healthcare and some others, some other industries, finance and tech, it's going to be decades. If, if ever that's going to change, it's only going to change and I shouldn't say that because I am seeing some real declarations from companies that I would have never imagined would have gone hybrid. And they used to be complete on campus life on site. And they're allowing for a lot more flexibility. Even large banking and finance institutions are saying hybrid, which I would have never imagined before. So there's shift, but yeah. it's going to take a long time before we stop treating those junior associates, associates and that, you know, and that those big banks differently than we have before. Um, have so you, it's going to be like generational, I think. Have you found in, in your work that there are either leaders or companies that at least say that they want to help, say that they want to focus on it? I know. I mean, I understand there's a group that is saying, nah, not a problem. And then there's the group that, that hires you, right? That says there's a problem and we're willing to do whatever it takes to fix it. Is there a middle group that is saying, oh, yeah, we want to fix it, but then there is really no actionable next step, even though they will maintain that they're trying to fix it? Yeah, I see all three groups consistently. And I see one of the things that I see is this desire for change. It's aspirational. And then they'll embed a few, you know, tactics or and they even have a strategy that they plan to execute. But, you know, business as usual takes over and that's why it's really hard to make change because, you know, all of a sudden you're in the busiest time of your season and all those things that yeah. you were trying to, to fix, like we're going up now into, a, you know, the counting's worst time of year, January to sort of to April, right? It's just a very busy season for a lot of firms. And so, you know, what we're going to see is all those things sort of put aside and then the hab breaks and then it's like starting over again. So it really has to be that it's it's just a, a slow change, but there needs to be KPI. Like I said, there needs to be these performance indicators that are attached to everybody's expectation of a, as a direct manager, as an executive. Um, you're seeing that a lot with diversity and inclusion, where there's this commitment to a certain X amount of people at the executive level, and that's that's built into their expectations and their their strategies and their their stretch goals include this amount of diversity that they need at, at the board and executive level. That's sort of what we're starting to see in the mental health space is that it's it's becoming part of what needs to be monitored and and proctored and um, and incented. So I, I always get skeptical when I hear companies that say that they care about these things because they are what I would call the answers that you know, the teacher expects out of you. Um, not a lot of companies are going to say, no, we, we actually hate diversity, right? Nobody's going to say that. Uh, some people might feel that way. Um, it, to, I can't, I mean, I guess you have certainly probably experienced that somebody has, a company is saying, we don't care about burnout. We are willing to, to, to just, you know, beat people into the ground. Um, but it seems like people have to say that they're doing something. Yet there isn't a decision that's made to actively defeat this issue. Um, you know, as, a, as an author of the, a book on the burnout epidemic, what do you think, what, what is your tip for those companies, for those leaders on how to make better decisions on living up to what they say? 
Yeah. And, and I do see a lot of, you know, people that are providing lip service to it for sure. You know, I, I hear these declarations of, you know, we're going to give a week off to our burned out employees. And that's something that really bothers me because it's like, well, they're going to take a week off, but go right back to getting burned out. So it yeah, sounds really sexy again. and everyone yeah. loves to put the headline out there. It's all over the, you know, media. It's just such a great gra- headline grab, but it, it means nothing. Yeah. I, so I, I would think, think that some, for, for some people actually being away from the office might create additional stress. Yeah, there's this really great ADP study that said it's like a 17-hour time deficit that you like you lose 17 hours of time to go on a vacation these days because you have to do like multiple hours beforehand to get right. ready and then all these hours to catch up on the way back and you've probably been checking your email the whole time while you're away. So I think like these ideas are great, but are they really getting to the problem? And so I've seen companies that are trying and I'm sure they think it's a good thing. Like they think that they're doing a good thing, but then they realize that they're not because nothing changes. And so that's the shift that I think a big part of what I feel like my role is, is just to get people thinking about burnout and and stress in a different way than how we've been attacking it so far. And I don't think we should, you know, penalize anyone for thinking that giving a vacation is a good thing. Like it makes sense. Like let's give time off to people. Of course, like they're really tired. This is a great thing. Yeah. It's a good intention. It's just helping people to recognize that those good intentions don't really work if you're not also putting in the other pieces of that puzzle to solve the problem. And so you need to have all of those things. We still need to give people paid time off so that they can you know, have a vacation and we shouldn't be bombarding them with emails while they're away. But we also should make sure that they're not going back to work to feel like they can't breathe for three weeks afterwards because they have so much more extra to do when they return to work. Um, so it really is uh, thinking differently about what burnout actually is and how it's caused. What do you what do you think is the most important decision companies should make then if they want to prevent burnout? Like what's the what's the well, key would, decision they ought to be? I would say tackle the the biggest problem that we're dealing with right now, which is workload. And workload is the leading cause of burnout. It was before, it was after. There's all these other things that we need to be thinking about and understand that there's more root causes than than chronic overwork, but that's the biggest one right now. And understanding that, you know, there's these really great right to disconnect policies. One's coming into Canada right now where there's a law that gives employees the right to actually disconnect and sue their employer if they're being, you know, um, bombarded with digital ass after they go home. And you see that in France and other places around the world. I say, why do we need to have a law to, you know, to just make good guidelines? Like we don't, we shouldn't have to have a law that you know, creates this policy. However, we do need to have safety laws. And if someone's working at two o'clock in the morning, it's not healthy. Um, so we need to first address workload. And I would say, you know, create some guidelines around what is the amount of meeting percentage of meetings compared to our other work that we should be doing every week, and then give employees permission to politely decline meetings if they've gone over that amount, um, be able to have time to disconnect at night, making sure that you have guidelines around when people can be emailing you and asking you to, to jump on a call, how early your meetings are. I mean, we see global firms that expect their employees that are in other time zones to jump on at 3 a.m. or 5 a.m. to a call. They should not be asked to do that. You know, those are the kind of things that we should be thinking about and just giving people space to be creative and thoughtful and get their projects done and stop working on all these urgent needs. Um, and I think just the start of some of that reduction in inefficiencies will help improve people's experience of, of work. What would you say is your, your kind of closing advice uh, to help people make better decisions just for in their for their own lives? If they feel like they're experiencing burnout, you know, we, we've talked a lot about what the employers can do. But but there's only so much if, if I'm the employee, you know, I don't I don't have the ability to change the, you know, the fairness uh, or, or the the amount of work or the, the you know, the agency I have. I mean, I'm just there. How do I make a, make decisions for myself to insulate myself against the risks of of burnout? 
Well, I think this, the, the broader, you know, schematic of saying and being able to create this sort of priority in your day to day, you know, it, how much am I taking on that's uh, my own personality that's taking on extra that I could be pulling myself back from? How much is it being imposed on me? How do I create better expectation management around my time? And also just, you know, thinking about work as a, an important part of our lives. But when we start to become so micro focused on work as being the end all and be all, we lose sight of what really matters. And I've created my deathbed regrets, you know, um, question that I ask. And I think it's morbid, but it really does work because I have been that person that has just really taken on way too many projects and, and not ended up doing as well as I could have at all of them. And, and I, you know, let people down and I let myself down. And I think what I've started to do is think if that thing can be sent tomorrow, or if that thing, you know, if I can, if someone says it's urgent, I always ask them like, well, how urgent, what does urgency mean for you? Does that mean like you need it tonight? Does that mean you can, you know, you're going to be presenting it to the team in two weeks. You just want it tonight. I think that's what we need to be doing is having more um, conversations with people in an open way to, to make sure that they're not just saying that their urgent need is your is yours and it's immediate. Um, and, and for me, it's really saying, okay, what is the most critical thing? And I have been telling people, like, if this is a toxic environment, that's never going to change. You know, you have this really psychologically unsafe workplace and you're working 80 hours a week and you hate it and you're miserable, then you should quit your job. You're in, a, there's more power that you have right now. There's more capacity for you to find another job. That might sound privileged. Not everyone can do that, but there are a lot of people who can, and they just don't, they're so worried about what that might look like. And, and I have had lots of people that have said, you know what, I did leave. I did make a choice or asked to move into a different department you know, that was healthier and it was the best thing I ever did. And I think sometimes we need to be able to not be so afraid of what the possibilities might be without this protection of work, um, because there's a lot of other things that we can be doing. And if it's going to suck the life out of us, it's not, it's just not worth it, you yeah. know? Yeah. Hey, so, so Jennifer, where can people find you? Yeah, they can go to my website, jennifer-moss.com, and I'm on all the socials, so you can find me, you know, there. Um, I do a lot of I do a lot of talking with people on LinkedIn. I find like that's sort of where my people are. So feel free to reach me there too. And the book is called uh, The Burnout Epidemic. Uh, that's it. I love it. That's it. I love yeah. it. Jennifer, thank you so much for spending time with us. I, I learned you so a lot. You know, my takeaway from our discussion with Jennifer is really around how we deal with that burnout. And so many times we think we can deal with burnout by, you know, providing snacks in the break room or having a wellness program or giving people a little, little bit of a break. But it's really around having agency around that, that role and feeling like there's a sense of purpose uh, and, and value. And I think if people are really engaged and enjoying it, that burnout is more difficult for it to begin to creep in. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. One thing that I really took away from our conversation with Jennifer as well is that it's our responsibility as employers and leaders to, to solve that problem. Um, I, I've known this firsthand, employees, team members are likely not going to come forward and say, hey, I'm burnt out. In fact, if they do, and if I wait for that moment, uh, it's usually past the point where I'm able to solve it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Decidedly. I hope you learned something. I know I did. If you thought our show was five-star worthy, please check us out on iTunes and give us a five-star review. It really helps out a lot, helps people find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. Check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Until next time, I'm Sanger Smith with Sean Smith. This is decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers who are not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their own opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. 
This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.